Does Monday at the office feel like a storm? Not with Microsoft Copilot. That feeling when Copilot gets everyone up to speed instantly? It's sunny again. When Copilot simplifies complex data so your teams can act, that sun's shining on a beach. And when Copilot uncovers hidden insights, you're on that beach with your people and you find buried treasure. That's Microsoft Copilot. Learn more at Microsoft.com slash AI for all. Hey, it's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda. You never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price, Priceline. Ladies and gentlemen, children of all ages, we love Welcome to the fantastic world of Hannah and Barbara, a celebration of Bill Hannah, Joe Barbara, and the thousands of people past and present who have shared in their entertainment tradition. And now your host, Greg Airbar. Thank you, Chris Anthony, and thank you all for joining us in the fantastic world of Hannah and Barbara. And we have for you one of the world's, just one of the world's foremost authorities on comedy. He is an actor, he is an entertainer, he is a lecturer, he is an author. Ladies and gentlemen, Mr. Nick Santamaria. Thanks for being with us, Nick. Thank you, good to be here. <laughs> now, this is an instance where I wish it was video, because it's- I just did a whole thing. You just mentioned everything that I do, and I acted it out as you were saying it. Like when Kukla, Fran, and Ollie would play an RCA Victor record, and they would yes. perform while it was playing, which was so brilliant, while you were yeah. just equally brilliant, Mr. <laughs> Chilstrom. We're going to talk about, as Carol Channing said, the comedy. The and comedy. The comedy. Yeah. Nick, Nick is one of the things, one of the many things. I mean, he's been on Broadway. He's toured in major comedies. He was in The Producers. He was the original genie at Disney California Adventure Park in the Aladdin, a musical spectacular. He's on the cast album. Have some of column A, try all of column B. I'm in the mood, so I hope you do. You ain't never had a friend like me. He was the first person, the non-animated person, to play the genie long before anyone else did. And there were lines around the park for that. That was a big, big show. That was making headlines. Nick was getting rave reviews. Nick has just published a book with Matthew Conium called The Annotated Abbott and Costello. You can read it through if you haven't seen the films or if you haven't seen them lately. Most fun is if you have them and then you go through and read each of the areas. There's also lots of supplemental material, lots of essays. It actually will tell you where you can stop the picture and make note of things. So it's like having a commentary in a book. And yes. That's just some of the things. What else have you done, Nick? On my birthday, that's March 31st, 
which is also my mom's birthday, by the way, will be 50 years since my first paid gig in show business. So I'm like celebrating my 50th year. I'm a jobbing actor. Nobody really knows who I am unless you're into Disney. That's probably my greatest claim to fame. But I've been through the mill. I, I tell people I've done everything but ballet. And it's true. And I've drifted into teaching and film history, uh, show business history. I'm writing books now. <laughs> it's just a wonderful thing. I mean, as acting becomes, how can I put this? As I became less and less interested in memorizing lines, other people's lines, and going out on stage and acting those roles, as fun as that is, I decided that I'm going to concentrate on writing and teaching and an occasional role in something that I have a part in creating. So I think that's where I'm at. Well, right the now. most important thing I think, and you're doing it, is to have goals and to keep having something to focus on and something ahead is always mm -hmm. important, always focus. And that's what successful people do. So what we're <laughs> going to do with Nick's assistance is we're going to look at the vast, not all of it, output of, <clears throat> excuse me, of Hannah and Barbara and their artists. That sounded like your output. <laughs> I took a musinix too. And we're going to look at the, the comedy and the timing. And Nick is a great expert at explaining what is timing, how does it work, and how does it apply to animation. And I'll let Nick start with whatever he wants to because it's decades long. So, Well, okay. I'm, I'm going to start really with silent comedy because uh, if you asked... Any, let's just take Termite Terrace, for example, the Warner Brothers crew, mm -hmm. which was considered really the funniest, consistently funny cartoon studio at the time. It's Frank Tashlin, Chuck Jones, Robert Clampett, uh, certainly Tex Avery. They all admitted to going to these classic comedies with notebooks and pencils, and they would make notes of gags as they were watching them. And that is the basis for animation comedy think about it you know you had way back when before cartoon characters were filled in they were still like line drawings mm -hmm. you know you had the charlie chaplin cartoons it was based on classic comedy and so was everything else right down to felix the cat felix the cat was often compared to charlie chaplin that was the main influence chaplin was the main influence in the early days but they would go to vaudeville shows and steal gags and you know put them up there but there was also radio to consider and I'm talking pre-television radio when it was all anybody had. There were characters that were so rich and so familiar. And when I say familiar, they were like family that would come up week after week. Uh, not unlike, you know, your favorite television sitcoms or shows today. But the voice artists for uh, Warner Brothers and MGM and, oh, Terry Tunes like crazy. They had Dayton Allen at Terry Tunes. Mm -hmm. He was a master at voices, especially Groucho. When Heckle and Jekyll would become Groucho Marx, that was Dayton Allen. But anyway, they went to radio uh, mostly for the characters. Foghorn Lakehorn was Senator Claghorn from the Fred Allen show, from Allen's Alley. Mm -hmm. And then there was a man by the name of Dawes Butler. Yeah. Short in stature and tall in talent. He was a vaudevillian, and he used to, not unlike Jim Carrey, he would not only imitate the voices of people, but he would bend his face to look like these people. Mm -hmm. I still think about stills of him that he had published as promotional material. There's one where he's doing Joey Brown, and you have to look twice. It's like, whoa, 
<laughs> that might be Joey Brown. Yeah. And he, of course, translated to what's a hurricane hippo. Uh, oh, Peter Potamus. Yeah. Peter Potamus. Yeah. Was Joey Brown. So I find that part of it fascinating, being a classic comedy fan. And that leads me to something that you're also expert about is explaining timing. And there's two aspects of Hanna-Barbera cartoons, especially the early television ones and the Tom and Jerry's between Barbera's gags, which were really funny, and the poses, which a lot of those he worked on or with his great group of people, they were handpicked. Hannah had great timing. And so did Scott Bradley with the music. But what exactly is timing and why is it working those? Why do people keep watching those? Because they're great. Because they're great, plain and simple. Those Tom and Jerry's from Hanna-Barbera at MGM were a revelation to me. I didn't grow up with them. We did not have them in New York. They never showed Tom and Jerry until after I moved out of New York. Hmm. And I remember my Aunt Jo telling me, sometimes when I'm cleaning the house, I put them on in the background because the music is so great. Mm. Oh, boy, I'm so glad you mentioned his music because it's half of it to me. It accentuates the gag without getting too Mickey Mousey. The music stops at just the right time when the anvil falls on his head and you hear the sound, the clang, and then the music starts again. You know what I mean? That was Uh, deliberate. Yeah. knew what they were doing. These guys were amazing. When I think about the Harmon Ising cartoons that preceded the Hanna-Barbera cartoons, mm-hmm. it reminds me of the Tex Avery cartoon where Screwy Squirrel beats up the rabbit, you know, the cute little bunny. Oh, yeah. That- <laughs> and that was sort of like a, you know, a message. We're not doing Disney here. Okay, we're not doing Disney. And Little Red Riding so, Hood, um, we're so tired of this. <laughs> yeah, right? Exactly. <laughs> so they were opening up and Hanna-Barbera just jumped aboard on that. And the gags are spectacular. And the combination between, and this, you know, Chaplin would tell you this, someone who actually wrote the music and wrote the movies and acted in them and edited them. He would tell you that it is a combination of all of those things that make for great comedy. So you've got the great music accentuating everything you're seeing. You've got animators that just have a feel for comedy, for things that make you laugh. And then you're editing. Your editing is all important. Now, I'm wondering if you know this or but did Hanna-Barbera during those days, do you know if they edited it in their heads? You know what I mean? How some people... I think to a degree they did because Barbera was a great storyboard artist. And he continued, as I've found in interviews for this podcast, he continued to do that. You know, they were not hands off. Even later, mm-hmm. even in the 80s, when he would go through a script or a board, he'd sketch things out and say, no, let it do this, let it do that. Or he'd act it out in front of people. And yeah. Hanna... He had everything tightly, tightly thought out because Hannah was a musician. In fact, he directed mm-hmm. some of the harmonizing things, too. And he wrote songs for them. Wow, so I didn't know I think that. the other thing that and this is in, I think, Barbara's book, My Life in Tunes, they were laughed at when they proposed The Cat and the Mouse, when MGM desperately needed running characters. They said, everybody's done it. They said, well, we're going to do it different. And to sell it, in effect, what they did was what they call an animatic because they created a reel with 
a tiny bit of animation, kind of like the baby weem sequence in Reluctant Dragon. And mm. that's what they showed to execs because you can't always express a creative idea to people who aren't picturing it. So that's how they sold Puss Gets the Boot. Yeah, that's interesting. That was the pilot for characters that are still being animated today. You know, mm. whether you like what they're doing with the characters now or not, they're still alive. <laughs> they still have blood. But not growing up with Tom and Jerry, I had an adult's point of view seeing them for the first time. And it kind of confused me because you have Tom and Jerry, you know, at the top, you know, they look, they're smiling and everything <laughs> and in pictures. They're like holding each other and shaking hands. They're enemies. They're complete and total enemies, just like a cat and a mouse are enemies in real life. Mm-hmm. And Tom is the villain. He's really the villain of the piece. I look at it differently because I'm thinking, well, he's just acting like a cat. You know, he's doing yeah. what a cat would do. But for comedy purposes, you know, it never works out like Sylvester and Tweety. I always found it interesting that you had two characters, beloved characters. Let me put it this way. It would be like at the top of the Popeye cartoon, Popeye and Bluto next to each other. Smiling. <laughs> yeah, I never yeah. thought of that. Smiling. Rather... <laughs> it always confused me. It still to this day confuses me. Like Sylvester and Tweety and like a, a lot of great Hitchcock films, your loyalty keeps changing throughout because your heart goes out to Sylvester and to Tom because they're such morons. And so sometimes it's like, well, you know, Tweety's going to be okay. And you know, Jerry's going to be okay. So you're almost like, well, sure, it's a done deal. And so pathetic that you kind of wait for that. So, and the other thing that happens, and this is something that uh, Jerry Beck and Leonard Malton pointed out in their book, A Mice and Magic, is that they have this sort of frenemies code that when some, a third party comes in, it's like, well, what are you doing here? And sometimes they may align, which is another sort of element of a rivalry. It's like, well, let's yeah. put it aside. They band together for a mutual enemy. Yeah, it's fun. The dynamic is probably, and all of those other elements you mentioned, is probably why they have endured. I feel the same way you do about the Walter Lance cartoons. I did not grow up with them. I grew up with Tom and Jerry mostly on CBS when it was mm-hmm. on Sundays. But Walter Lance cartoons were rare. And in the 70s... We we had the Woody Woodpecker show. We had that when I was young, but there was this gap where there was tons of Woody merchandise and I had the records and all. But then the 70s, he returned to NBC and then they were syndicated. And now they're on MeTV. Watching them is kind of the same kind of revelation as here's this old parallel universe. Yeah. Characters. Yeah. Yeah. The old ones especially are quite good and very funny. Yeah, they had some great people. Well, Mel Blanc was there, too, in a lot of these. Yeah, oh, yeah. Before Grace. Well, you know what? I want to have you talk in more detail about Abbott and Costello and their history and where they both were, especially Bud, when this cartoon came by. Because it's important for people to know what the circumstances were. And this is stuff I learned from your book. The annotated Abbott and Costello available now (laughs) on Amazon or where fine books are sold. That would be commercial. (laughs) Um, there's stuff in there I didn't know about both of them, especially about Bud, because he's not discussed much. No, he's not. So I, I want to go into the chain of events that led him up, because to my knowledge, the cartoon was the last thing he ever did. It was his last work. He teaches classes, folks. You know, let's talk about how people can not only get your book and you're working on a new one, but also how they can attend your classes about Comedy. I can't say it yeah. without like, like Carol Canning. 
Well, actually, if people listening to this, if you want to send me a friend request on Facebook, my Facebook page is a lot of fun. A lot of people come to it. A lot of people read my daily column, whatever. But it does open up a lot of things and give you a lot of information about stuff. But if you'd like to take class, I actually work for a company called Olli, O-L-L-I, the Osher Life Learning Institute. And you could find them online, Ollie.com. I teach for Cal State in California, and I teach a class for FAU, Florida Atlantic University. So look up Ollie.com. Look for my name. Right now I'm teaching a course called The Art of Abbott and Costello. You know, it's appropriate, though, that That's it. somebody who is an expert at comedy, you should be involved with something called Ale. Say Ale. I, I thought about that right at the top. It's like, <laughs> what could be more perfect? <laughs> You're married to it. What a lover. <laughs> One of the great, great well, exchanges of all. You know, it's infinitely quotable. And so is Abbott and Costello. And I just can't eat a turkey sandwich without saying uh, I don't care for one. But <laughs> I don't care for one. Uh, yeah, yeah. I'll order a turkey sandwich and a cup of coffee. Yeah, I'll give you half. When she asks you what you want, you just say, I don't care for anything. I don't care for nothing. That's right. You don't care for nothing. Uh, give me a turkey sandwich and a cup of coffee, please. What do you have? I don't care for nothing. Oh, go ahead. Have something. Give me a turkey sandwich. I just get through telling you. I refuse once. Tonight, that's enough. I know, but we only got a quarter. I mean, but the waitress says to me, go ahead and have something. I said, I don't care for nothing. Never never mind that. Never mind what I say. No matter how much I coax you, you just say, I don't want anything. I'll say I'll fold up. That's all. That's all. We only got a quarter. Okay. That turkey sandwich and a cup of coffee, please. And what do you have? I don't care for nothing. Oh, go ahead. Have something. Come on, you're in here to eat. Give me some ham and eggs. Well, I just get through telling you. One of my favorite books from you know, and one of my favorite films. Keep them flying. It's Keep them flying. flying. Yeah. With Martha Ray. Martha yeah. Ray playing twins. Martha Ray, you know, adding Martha Ray. Oh, so it, funny. It's, it's like a gift. And the funhouse scene too. The sequence. Oh, I love three. that. When he is sitting next to the gorilla and he finally realizes that it's not Martha Ray. <laughs> and he tries to move. He tries to get off the bench, and he can't. He's paralyzed, and he's pulling his own coat to get off that bench. It's so funny. It's just so funny. By that point, they would find any excuse to get him scared. The audiences loved it. Along those lines, before they used Martha Ray, they used Joan Davis. Joan Davis, America's Queen of Comedy. You know, I Mary Joan. I Mary Joan. What a tough person to work with. Um, but anyway, that, that's what Jim Backus was saying. Oh, by George Jones. Oh, oh by no, George, he's at it again. Yeah, <laughs> Davis was great, though. And she was oh, great. I love, her. I love her. Yeah, it's a shame that there are so few examples that can be accessed easily now that show why she was a very big comedy star at the time. One of the biggest female, certainly comedians and the equal of any of her contemporaries as far as i'm concerned when they say and i think it was 52 when i married joan and we're in the weeds again folks welcome to the weeds sorry kids we enjoy the weeds (laughs) she was touted as america's queen of comedy on i married joan but i think first of all she ran the show so she was calling herself that but by right she had the pedigree at the time because lucia ball had just come into her own she was on my my favorite husband but mm-hmm. in the film, 
she played all kinds of roles, not specifically comedy. On Joan Davis was preeminent at the time, so right. now it doesn't seem that way. But to most people, I would think. But you have to think about it that she had her own radio show, you know, and not many female comedians had their own radio shows at the time. You know, Johnny's Tea Room, <laughs> Weeds. yeah there we go so let's go back into the clearing into the meadow now into the into the wide open spaces my machete well you know abbott and costello i think your mission and your co-writer matthew why could aim with this book and also your mission in life is to reestablish, educate elaborate and help people understand not only why they were so great but why they still are because in recent years that isn't said as much that's kind of what we're trying to do with this podcast too is that hannah barbera is still with us their work is still popular a lot of it is accessible and their core characters are still being rebooted their originals are still currently being shown all over the world so why not talk about the truly historic significance and coolness of what they did. Same thing with Abbott and Costello. Everybody, not just Jerry Seinfeld, everybody who knows comedy enjoyed their shows. Keenan and Kel, that mm-hmm. was another show based on Abbott and Costello. I'm not saying it well, because I didn't write this book. Can you say it better than that? Well, I don't know if I could say it better. I could use different words. Okay. Um, here's the deal with Abbott and Costello. And this is what I learned in writing the book, because it was a revelation to me. I grew up thinking Lou Costello was the funniest guy in the world. You know, I mean, I love the Marx Brothers just as much, if not more. But Lou Costello was my first. And you always remember your first fondly. I can't understand the current opinion that I got from a lot of people saying, well, we think Bud is funnier than Lou. To me, it's ludicrous, so to speak. Bud's a straight man. Bud's the best straight man there ever was. Best straight man that ever put two legs on earth. But... He was not a star comedian. His admonishings towards Lou can be very funny when he gets knocked out and falls on the floor and Bud just says, fine time to take a nap. You know, things like that are are funny. He's completely insensitive. He's completely opportunistic. He's a bully. He's all of these things. Yet this is what's popular with today's audience. And it makes perfect sense to me. Cynical era. Cynical, Cynical, snarky. These retro opinions, the Three Stooges are the most popular vintage comedians in today's world. They're the only ones that are instantly recognizable and the only ones that people would actually say, oh, yeah, I'll watch that. And that gives you a clue as to where we are and why Abbott and Costello are looked at like that. I also have a discrepancy about their TV show. I was not a huge fan of their television show as much as their live television shows for Colgate the Colgate Comedy Hour, where you actually saw them in their element working in front of a live audience without any laugh track. Why would you choose a filmed thing with a terrible laugh track? You know, to me, it was like it looked almost thrown together. And Lou owned the show. And I know he bought it only because he felt if I get all these great routines on film in something that I own, I'll own the routines. You know, so that was basically what he was trying to do. So the first season was they completely ran out of routines. The second season, it's sort of like a, a slower two-reeler. You know what I mean? But like yeah. the three Stooges made two-reelers. The Laurel yeah. and Marty. So I just don't understand that. I'm sorry. 
Also, the other revelation I'm finding is that the movies are not popular. Unless it's Abbott and Costello, me, Frankenstein, Buck Privates, or Hold That Ghost, maybe Who Done It. They're just considered too long, too many songs, maybe the young lovers or whatever. Those things sort of disappeared as time went on, but still they have that reputation. And again, the discrepancy is I prefer the films over everything else. I love the songs. I love the actors that play the other roles. I love the complete films. If yeah. They were just wonderful, a wonderful way to spend 90 minutes. When you really break it down, it isn't so much the story as you went to the show. When you went to the movies, especially a comedy or a musical, you were going to the show. And some mm-hmm. people said, we're going to go to the show. They, they still say that in Ohio. Go to the show. Do they? Mm-hmm. They went to the show. And so when you watch these vintage entertainment films, as they were called, they were an entertainment. It was a noun. As I've heard you say, people enjoyed the romantic plot and they enjoyed the songs. And for gosh sakes, uh, with the Andrews sisters, how could you not? And how could you not? Again, Martha Ray doing her numbers. What was being delivered in those days was different to the audience. Yes. Oh, yes. And think about it. During the war, they were pretty much holding the audience in their arms and saying, it's going to be okay. It's going to be okay. Have a laugh on us. So valuable. What's crucial to remember is that I can't think of any comedy entity that did more than Abbott and Costello on screen and off during mm-hmm. World War II. That was a good intro to that because that was very, very important for a few reasons. And let me just start to tell people, if you don't know about Abbott and Costello, please buy my book. But if you don't have the money or the time, let me just say that they started out in burlesque, which was considered a lower tiered form of entertainment underneath vaudeville. And they rose out of burlesque to become the number one box office winners of the 40s, basically. They were always in the top 10. Often on top. Yes. And they were lauded and people loved them. And they were just amazing people. So they went on this summer long tour to sell war bonds. And they ended up selling $85 million dollars worth of war bonds. Now go into your Google and figure out what it is, you know, today in today's money. It's an incredible amount of money. That was all for our government. It was all for winning the war. The tour almost killed Lou. He developed rheumatic fever. He was exhausted and it almost killed him. And he had to stay in bed for an entire year to get better. And you know, with rheumatic fever, you can't do anything. No, this is a guy who was very physical and very active and very dynamic. An athlete, actually. And his baby boy was there that year. So they learned to walk again together. They learned to walk together, him and his little boy. I know it's terrible. I don't want to go there. But so anyway, so Lou had to go through that. And that was also, I say, that was for the government. He practically killed himself to sell those bombs. The book mentions the gap. There was a period where they weren't making anything because he couldn't. I don't know. He couldn't. There were periods actually all through their career where Bud had to step back and wait for Lou to get better. And Bud was no piker either. He had epilepsy. He lived in deathly fear of getting a fit in public in front of people. So Bud and Lou developed a system. When they were on stage, Lou could recognize when Bud was about to have a fit. And he would find an excuse to punch him as hard as he could in the solar plexus. And that would take him out of it. So Lou was very protective towards Bud, as far as that's concerned. The two of them did not know good health, basically. It's quite a tragedy. 
So the reason I'm bringing up the, all the stuff they did for the government is because if you fast forward into the early 1950s, the government came after them. They had an accountant that absconded with funds and did not file for certain years. Now, I'm not making excuses. They should have been on top of this, but they weren't. And they were penalized. They lost almost everything. Bud lost everything. Lou had to sell his showplace, his house. Uh, he had to move to the ranch. He had a ranch in the valley of California and eventually ended up in a nice apartment, basically, and died with about $350,000 in the bank. You know, not bad for those days, but certainly not the millions and millions of dollars he made during the heyday. Bud, unfortunately, had a long, had a lot longer to live. Uh, Lou died in 1959. So Bud really struggled with what he was going to do because no matter what he did, the government took the money. So he figured, why should I work? You know, if they're going to take my money. Why should I work? So he, he did one job in 61 with Lee Marvin. It was a GE theater hosted by Ronald Reagan. And Lou had done one before he passed away. So this was Bud's turn. Only Bud's was a supporting role, a good supporting role. And he was very good at that. He was. He really was good. And he played an abused agent of this, you know, horrible Don Rickles-like comedian. Bud does a nice job, but he, he doesn't show up again. We don't see him anymore. And now, folks, please stay with us for part two when actor-author Nick Santa Maria continues our exploration of cartoon comedy and Hanna-Barbera's Abbott and Costello cartoon starring Bud Abbott himself. This episode is brought to you by Bumble. So you want to find someone you're compatible with, specifically someone who's ready for a serious connection, totally open to having kids in the future, is a tall rock climbing Libra and loves rom-coms with vegan pizzas on Tuesdays just as much as you do. Bumble knows that you know exactly what's right for you. So whatever it is you're looking for, Bumble's features can help you find it. Date now on Bumble. <laughs> 